0: Nick Helm and Nathaniel
1: Metcalfe's Fan Club on Foo Bar Radio. <laughs> uh, you were drinking. It uh, <laughs> uh, doesn't really matter, does it? Because it's not live. we just have to remember if we started one minute late then we'd have to end one minute late. Um, but that's fine. Um, <laughs> you're, you're listening to Fern Club. Ah, right, this is the first I've, I've really spoken all day. Uh, I went to sleep last night and um, uh, uh, my chest was a bit tight and obviously I instantly assumed that I had COVID. And uh, my chest is still tight, so I'm still now convinced that I've got COVID. There you go. That's how I have started. My name is Nick Helm and you are... Um, <laughs> you, I was going to say, you are listening to uh, Nick Helm and... Nathaniel Metcalf's, uh Fan. Fan club. Uh, you well, I said fan, so you don't need to say fan, you just say club. Oh, hi, club. Club. Oh, God. God. OK, right, sure. Well, um, well my name is... I've done that. So, um, this is uh, another piece club. of... Uh, another edition of Slickers Fuck Entertainment, listening entertainment. Uh, thank you. Uh, we've had quite a, we, don't, we, we don't get a lot of feedback from our fans, but when we do, it's always very nice. So we've had some nice comments this week for some reason, and um, uh, that's very nice of you. Thank you very much. Uh, God fucking hell! Right, so it's another week. Another week done, completed. See, uh, we're not just to block down, down. It's
0: ticking them off
1: just that's how I feel about life It's just like we're over the bump and hurtling down the hill in a shopping trolley uh,
0: I think that is true do you not find it I found that in that period after Christmas though I found it much more difficult because I had no structure in a way lockdown. yeah I think
1: it, it I think I've had a birthday, and I've had um, like f- being forty. Turning forty has been on the horizon for a long time, so you've always had that to prepare for. And um, uh, Christmas is sort of like that annual thing where you can kind of like get ready for it. It's good to have something to get ready for. And I think as comedians, without Edinburgh to get ready for, you know, even just having like gigs as a marker to get ready for it's all becomes a little bit pointless. Um and uh, I've I've turned forty, so I've, that's that's gone and it's the beginning of the year. So I'm basically just preparing for death. Um that's how I feel about it at the moment. Um, yeah, I think that it's it is weird. Also I've um I've uh given up drinking uh and I don't think about it in the week, but it certainly does take away that thing to aim for every day. Do you know what I mean? It yeah. gets to a certain a certain po- a certain point, a time of the day. You can have a drink, and then uh, life takes care of itself after that. You kind of pass out, and then you go, that's the end of the day.
0: I found that the lockdown weekends also feel differently. And I find that odd. there's no reason... Well, this- to- This lockdown? Yeah. I feel like they've got a
1: bit of flavour. I think it's weird that people... I don't think it's weird. I I guess I sort of understand that people say lockdown, oh, this third lockdown, but I see it as one endless lockdown. (laughs) Um, So I don't really... I'm not really differentiating it between um, that and that one and this one. I just feel like I've had enough by this point. I I, I don't ever want to leave the flat again, but I do want to see my family, and I want the option of going to the pub or um, going to an actual shop or seeing someone in person. Do you know what I mean? It's like... uh, um, uh, it's just like, oh, fuck this. Fuck this now. Also, I do really miss going to the cinema. I know that we've sort of, like, it must... It might might seem really trivial, but uh, and this might seem sort of like a science project, this show. It's kind of like, oh, we'll just talk about, you know... Uh, well, we meant to talk about pop culture, but we'll just talk about films every week. So it must seem... But I love films so much. They're probably my... Mm, Fourth favourite thing, in the world, um, and the others are pretty high. Um, but I, I, I love them. I watch a film every day. The fact that you can't go to the cinema, like it's like um, alone time, isn't it? In the cinema, oh. you go there and. You sit in the dark and the quiet and I find it so relaxing and calming and then you watch a film and I'm not interested really in Fast and the Furious films or anything like that I, uh, so uh, uh, so like I know I talk about the a bit, we talk about the BFI but like I went to see Bringing Up Baby before lockdown which seems like well maybe it was a while before lockdown but I mean
0: it's one of my oh, lockdown, in, the, in the bit where we're allowed to go to the BFI
1: well, I went to see Lehane, then, which is 30 years old. And, um, wow, black, it? and black and white. Yeah. Isn't it Lehane? is 30 years old or 25 years old? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's either early or mid-90s. I think it might be... I think it might... Hmm, ah, well, we'll look that up. Um, either way.
0: It's
1: not on. Either way. Uh, 95, so it's tw- it was 25 years old when I... I was, oh. Do you know what I mean? It's just kind of like you get to see films that you might... They might have been putting off from watching on TV or Blu-ray or... You know what I mean? like a a (laughs) classic. Like a classic. I like seeing classics at the cinema because they're classics, they've stuck around. Like, there's just as many films that were released in the 30s as there are now. Like, hundreds of films were being made. They were churning out a film a week. A film... You know, they were just churning them out, these films... So many, and so many have been lost and haven't stuck around because they weren't classics, you know. Um, And they used to, like, destroy film and um, uh, get rid of negatives and stuff. So it's kind of like a lot of stuff that's survived over time is the real bona fide classics. And I don't want to watch them in my living room when I'm fucking around with my phone, you know. Uh, So it's great to go to, like, the BFI, not just because it's the BFI, but because it's a cinema that's shown classic films, and that is kind of, like, the one that is nearest to me or nearest to us. And so it's nice to go and see films there that you wouldn't normally get at the multiplex, and then, you know, there's a multiplex over the road, and then you get, like, the... I just miss going to the cinema. I miss the variety of cinemas. I miss the fact that they all do different things. I have a, diff- a favourite cinema for different things, you know. Like, the IMAX cinema, I'll go and see uh, Christopher Nolan films in. Or the Empire Leicester Square, I'll go and see kind of whatever is new. The cinema over the road is the cinema that my mum took me to when I was growing up, and uh, I'll go and... Uh, see stuff on a Sunday there or the Prince Charles cinema to see you know, 80s stuff that I haven't seen all, ever on a big screen that I grew up with on VHR Yeah, know, there's different cinemas that do different things and I miss that variety because everything is in my living room and everything smells of cooking <laughs> so, yeah, it'd be nice to get out anyway, that's what I'm feeling how about you, Nathaniel?
0: Similar, really. I mean, I do, that is the thing I probably miss most. And I like that thing where you kind of, it, it is an experience where you kind of get lost in something else, isn't it? and it isn't the same as watching something at home. The lights go down and it's like, right, this is what I've got to focus on now. They go down because they don't want you to, to go on your phone. They were invented before phones. So even though phones light up, you're not meant to be on them in the cinema. You're meant to mm. turn it off and just watch what's in front of you. And the lights go down, so you can't see anyone around you. You're meant to be like, it's in your you it's in your world. You've only got one thing to focus on, and that's the screen. And that's what I like. I do, and I do really miss it. And also, I think it is like, um, I think there probably is some kind of mental health aspect of going to the cinema. Because I think it's a real escape that you'll just like, you get to turn off for two hours and go, right. This is, my, this, is, this is my world for the next couple of hours. I'm going to have a break from doing whatever I've been doing all day and watch whatever's in front of me.
1: You're entitled to switch the world off, you know. Um, and in a way that you're not really... You're not really allowed to unless you're out of reception, you know. Hmm. It's kind of like when I'm on a plane... You have to switch your phone off, and because you're not really doing anything on a plane, you choose, you know, you're not on a plane to watch a film. You can watch a film, but you're not on the plane to watch a film and eat peanuts or whatever it is that you you do on the plane, yeah? So you are deprived of your phone for those few hours that you're on the plane, whereas in the cinema, you're choosing to switch it off, and um, that's quite rare, because people expect you to be accessible, you know. I get messages when well, I'm doing this, and it's like I can't. And then people go, "Well, you didn't get back to me." And it's just like, "Yeah, I know. I was busy for two hours a
0: week." <laughs> I think that this. is a mad thing, yeah. and I think that is your phones are now taken over that thing, isn't it? And I feel that urgency of things like oh, I've got to get back about that thing, and it's always like niggling at my back of my mind, like I've still got to do that, and I When I've done this, and I've got to do. Mm. But it is, like, when your phone's off, you can't get those messages. And that's fine. It's totally reasonable to not do that, <laughs> to not have, not have to be at the beck and call of your work or other responsibilities.
1: It's one of my favourite things about going to the cinema. I get so few messages in real life So when I switch my phone on, there's always that brief moment where you yeah. think, oh, I wonder what I've got. <laughs> Same with why I look forward to wake up every morning. Um, it's, not, it's not because I've got another day of lockdown
0: ahead of me. Well, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a mean average, isn't there? Like, if you turn your phone on and you've got four messages, you go, oh, that's nice. If you turn your phone on and you've got 33, you go, uh-oh.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's how I feel about Twitter. That's how I feel about it. It's like, uh, I'll have, like, three notifications, and I'll be like, oh, yeah, that's nice you've got 20-plus notifications, you go, oh, fuck, what, was, what have I done? Or, oh, God, is it live at the Apollo again?
0: <laughs> it, they do it's come like, out on Dave, don't they, though? They do come round.
1: Fuck me, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's... Live, live your life in truth. So It's also weird, because I've had sort of, like, some creative work to do. There's constantly, in the back of your mind... There's, uh, uh, you know, we can always be doing something as professional creatives. You can always be getting on with something. And um, uh, I found it really difficult in lockdown to to do creative work. Um, Firstly, I work best when I'm miles away from a computer. Um, I work best when I'm going out uh, for, like, a long walk or I'll work best when um, I'm chatting to people and I'm on my feet and I'm doing stuff. That's when I work best, when I'm interacting with people. Mm-hmm. So when I'm sat on my own, I actually hate working in under those circumstances. I hate writing like that. Um, what I like doing is chatting my thoughts through with someone and then when I work out what it is, I come down and I write it down and... Um, and I'm like that like, with music as well. Um, I'll have, like, keys in my pocket, and when I'm walking down the road, the keys will be sort of, like, jangling in my pocket, and then I will write music to to that. You know, so it's kind of like... Um, and I'm not saying that that's, like, a very unique thing. I'm just, like, saying that in lockdown, I've, in the back of my head, I've had, like, this low-level... Actually, quite a high-level stress and panic... Knowing that there are specific things that I should be writing and doing and then just having this struggle with it and then being able to put it off to the next day and the next day and the next day, it's just like... So the whole of lockdown, I've been stressed the whole time because uh, there's been work that I should be doing that I can't. I'm finding it very difficult to. The The other thing that's getting in the way is you do think, what is the point? Are we, are we, there's some level to it where you just think, are things going to be changed beyond all recognition by the time we get out? Yeah. And is there going to be a need for it?
0: Um, I think it's it's interesting now as well, because now we've kind of, this is recorded a couple of days after we've just been given this roadmap to get out of lockdown. And there's various things opening up slowly between now, which is... Uh, towards the end of February, 24th of February, I think, it's record recording, and, and uh, middle of June, when everything's meant to kind of open up again and be fully open. And there's that funny thing about it, that for the last year, we've been given this kind of, lots of like little bits of false hope and hope. And I've chatted to someone the other day, and I thought that, in a funny way, I reckon, um, even though it feels like the pandemic has probably been mishandled, by the government in lots of ways, I think it's probably been a lot easier to deal with because we've been given these bits of false hope where it's saying, yeah, basically, in July, we're all going to get back to normal, then we went back in. But I think it would have been much worse if Boris and co in March last year had said, basically, we've got well over a year of this (laughs) and we're all just going to, like, yeah, a whole year forget forget about your Christmas, forget about all your birthdays, forget about any holidays you have going to have this year, forget about all of it for at least a year, like 15 months. Then I think if that had happened last March, we all would have lost our minds, and we wouldn't have been able to cope with it.
1: Um, no, we wouldn't have been able to cope with it, and we would have lost our minds, but I would... Um, after we'd have got, like used to the fact that we were in a bit of a lockdown, I think I probably would have preferred them to just say, oh, it's going to be over a year. Oh, yeah? Because, because yeah, because it's kind of like, oh, you're going to be able to see your family in a couple of weeks. No, nah, you're not. Are oh, you going to... You know, aside from the fact that, um, that, you know, I I miss my family, we all miss our families to some degree, <laughs> but, you know, I miss my family. I've got parents, traditionally, that are older than me, and um, I want to spend as much time that I can with them, you know? Um, and then I've got a niece as well, who got born just at the beginning of last, you know, when we first went to lockdown, and she 's fucking huge now, and it 's kind of like you 've got this visual representation of how long we 've been in lockdown you know um, and so it 's kind of like I would have i don 't know i mean let 's not go over what we all miss about lockdown but but what it says i say 'd rather have known that it would have been this amount of time because. I kind of could have prepared for that. I kind of, I think the fact is that I never really uh, came up with um, a career plan while in lockdown because it all seemed like, well, it's three months of this. I can do deal with three months, two months, two weeks. I can deal with these chunks at a time mm. without committing to anything specifically. But if I'd have been told that a year and a half you've got to fend for yourself, I maybe would have kind of like really got stuck in and done something. You know, so I feel like that's been annoying, um, but also or came up with a a plan a plan B for for a little bit. But I don't know.
0: I suppose you um, also know you weren't going to do as well by given that uh, time. If they said everything's gone for a year, you wouldn't have spent any brain power trying to think about writing.
1: An Edinburgh show. I've, del- I've delayed a t- yeah writing an Edinburgh show. I've delayed a tour twice. We've rearranged a fucking tour with marketing. Uh, you know, got a guy that does the flyers, um, uh, a, a, a woman that books all of the venues. I've got a PR department. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of like you go, oh all right, all right, we're not going on a tour now, so we'll delay it till we delayed it to uh, we delayed it from uh, last March to. Uh, last September to this March to 2022 from a show that I wrote in 2019 and it's like I wrote a show in 2019 about my very specific mental health problems that I was going through during 2018 to 2019 Um, I don't want to do that show in 2022. So, you know, just let me know when I'm touring again. I'll write a show specifically. But, like, do you know what I mean? It's just kind of like... Um, yeah, fuck it. I mean, um... Uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I've, I've got nothing new to say about it other than the fact that I don't... I think that had we not been... Comp- I mean, I don't know what it's like in other countries because obviously we get listened to in other countries. But... In England, we've had false hope every couple of months. where uh, And then it's been taken away from us at the last minute. We were told four days before Christmas, we were told that we would all be able to spend Christmas with each other. And then four days before Christmas, after everyone had bought food and everyone had bought presents, to hand over to people, we were told that we weren't going to be able to see each other, which meant that... Um, we couldn't give each other presents. There wasn't enough time to sort of like pla- ha- have that kind of like Plan B. That's their that's their fucking roadmap. Their roadmap is written in fucking uh, uh, it's fucking written in condensation in the middle of the in, from inside the car. And uh, it keeps fucking running off. Do you know what I mean? It's just kind of like... So the fact that they're saying that everything's going to be back to normal in July, it's just like, I will fucking believe that when I fucking see it, mate. All right? Why don't you keep your fucking plans to yourself? Just tell us we're locked in indefinitely, and then it'll be a lovely surprise one morning when we're allowed to be fucking released. You know, we've got a four-step plan. We've got a four-step plan for fucking... Uh, uh getting back to normal steps one to three uh fucking <laughs> incarcerate a nation for <laughs> fucking two years and step four is let them out i need
0: it I, mean? I need it though i think i'm I'm the opposite i kind of i think i i think if there's no sense of it ending i find it incredibly difficult and when i'm i can be a bit um you know, I can be a bit Pollyanna-ish about it when it's like, hey, it's all right. Only another only another four weeks till I'm allowed to chat to someone outside or something. Only another, uh, only, only another five weeks till I can do this. Only another... I, I like that about it. I, um, um... You like you like having, like, the
1: checklist? I like the
0: yeah, well, I like having a, a bit of a... I like having something to aim for and a date where yeah, I go, like, a even...
1: Even though uh, that has been repeatedly shown to be bullshit. Yeah.
0: I think otherwise I think I'd find it too, like, the indefinite nature of it, I think, I've, I'd find too difficult. It is. It and it has been last bit, really difficult where there's been no information, and I found that more difficult than anything else, I think. where it's just But, it
1: has, but it has been indefinite. Mm. There hasn't been kind of, like, much
0: positive news. There were, it was worse. <laughs> it was worse no, than yeah, I found know. it. That's been, this has been the worst bit with no end in sight. Yeah, but, like,
1: the coronavirus has been worse at the beginning of this year than it has at any other point. Yeah. It's kind of like... It's not like... It's not, they haven't got a handle on it. No, that's There's it. Po- that, that's so, why. So, so you like the bullshit of saying, well, we'll all be allowed to see our loved ones in three weeks, and then three weeks count by, and then you go... And then they go, oh, no, you can't really. And you go, oh, all right, okay, well, what's the next bullshit marker? Whereas I would rather have them saying, just get used to the fact that you're not going to see anyone for a year, and then I could go, right, okay. I think
0: it's like if someone said, uh, um, if I was in an accident, and I went to hospital, and I said to the doctor, am I going to die? If the doctor said... Yeah, probably. I'd be like, what? If he said, (laughs) if he said, no, you'll be fine. Even if I died, I'd be a bit like, that's all right. I'd rather be told it's going to be all right. But you're going to be all right. Yeah. Wouldn't you
1: rather know, wouldn't you rather know that you had two weeks
0: to do stuff? Oh, yeah. Yeah, probably, yeah. No, I would in that situation, yeah.
1: I don't, I'm not sure. It's kind of like the opposite point, isn't it? Because um. th- this is like this is like saying, we're going to lock you up for a year and a half, but then after that, you're free. Whereas that is, uh, oh, you'll be fine. So you don't really do anything with your two weeks, and then you're dead. <laughs> and then you go on your deathbed, I wish I'd been told that I only had two weeks. <laughs> I would have probably tried to iron a few things out. <laughs> Um, I th- yeah, but I, 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 I sort of, I sort of feel like we're coming at it from completely different um, points of view. Um,
0: I think I've, so, I've, I've, I've found this week easier than I have other weeks where I felt like there's no way out.
1: I'm just finding it like um, uh, I just I'm I'm on a diet and I'm not going to the gym um, because the gyms are closed and the reason I had as a personal trainer in the first place was <laughs> because I can't I don't, I don't have the self motivation to do that myself right I need someone to shout at me to get it done fine okay I'm finding uh, no, no booze no fags and a diet Is one and not being allowed out and not being able to do what makes me happy to be, uh, creative, to be on stage if I want to, do you know what I mean? Uh, to see my friends. Um, I think it's just sort of like, I am now like mentally in a place where it's just kind of like, what is there that, what is there left? (laughs) And, um, And for me, I guess, um, it's, uh, I'm sort of like, um, I'm obsessive. I've got like, um, uh, I've got a personality, so I do watch almost a film a day and I sort of need that at the end of the day to watch a film, Mm -hmm. um. And I don't even know how much I kind of like enjoy it. It's like, <laughs> it's like I need to do it to tick it off, as opposed to I'm desperate to watch that film. It's kind of like there's uh, what, one of the frustrations in my life is the fact that, I mean, they essentially make, they f- essentially finish a film a day, and it's kind of like it's like being on a sinking ship with a with a with a sieve and you're kind of like trying to chuck water out of of the boat that you're in, and it's kind of like, it just keeps filling up. It's kind of like, no matter how many films I watch, there'll always be more films to watch.
0: I feel like that with new films, either. Like, you have that in a year, you have all these films released, and you hear some are good. And all I need to do is, I need to see one film from the past that I'd never heard of, that I thought was brilliant, and I go, I feel like I've been lied to my whole life, it's like, no-one even told me this was good. There's probably, like, millions of them now. It's probably millions of good stuff I've not seen. Well, no, I, I feel
1: the opposite. I feel like... I, I mean, not to be disparaging to any of our guests, but whenever we have a guest that says that their favourite film is a film that came out two weeks ago, I'm always just like, really? Your favourite? <laughs> don't, don't you need to let that marinate for a little bit before you decide it's your favourite? Um... I mean, I watched Rogue One last night. Uh, I've seen all the Star is now, um, again. And uh, watched Rogue One last night, which I saw at the cinema. Remember the sweet spot between The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi, where Star Wars was great again. And the Rogue One came out, and it was something new. Uh, it was before The Mandalorian. It was before Luke Skywalker... Uh, was a depressed hermit who drank <laughs> walrus milk out of its tits. It was before... <laughs> it was... Right, so watched Rogue One, and I remember at the cinema crying... All the way through it, because I thought it was wonderful. I just... It was really emotional. It made me happy. It made me sad. It felt like classic Star Wars. It was what had been missing from the prequels. I just, you know, I loved it. I just thought it was such a great cinematic experience. And I left that cinema thinking, that is one of the best films I'd ever seen. Never watched it again until yesterday. And... I've barely thought about it since yesterday. I know I'm always a bit... I'm a bit scared thinking I liked Rogue One and I was a bit scared to revisit it in case it didn't live up to my uh, memory. And it didn't. Um, There are bits of it that are great there's obviously all that stuff that came out about the fact that they reshot 45% of it or however much it was and there's loads of footage in the trailer that looks amazing and isn't in the final film so there's always that part of you that goes well what did they do, what did they change Um, there's the best bit of the film which is the ending feels tacked on completely like the film finishes and then the best bit happens and it's almost unrelated to the rest of it and it's sort of fan service there's loads of fan service in there but I like the fact that Jimmy Smits is in it from the prequels and it kind of, I like go, oh, good, they did something with that character and they sort of, um, you know, even if it's just sort of like a cameo. Um, uh, I always found it weird that Jimmy Smith was in Star Wars.
0: You He's know, good.
1: It was kind of like you haven't given him anything to do. He's literally uh, a background character. But he was like a staple of nineties TV, and then Jimmy Smits is there playing. Oh, that's Princess Leia's dad. Well, what is he gonna is he gonna do something? No, no. So you're probably gonna get some sort of like uh, character actor that blends in. No, no. Gonna get Jimmy Smiths. <laughs> uh, he's like instantly recognizable, and he's just gonna be kind of like turning up, and you're always gonna think, what's Jimmy Smiths gonna do next? I think nothing.
0: uh, uh, Yeah, I I think you're right in that. I've got very fond memories of watching it. I watched it twice at the cinema, and both times I really thoroughly enjoyed it. But there uh, there are elements to it where I think, like it is, it is from a period of time that kind of made it quite special. I remember I saw it. I think the day after Carrie Fisher died, and. And you have that bit at the end where she... And you have all that. So I think, actually, there's lots of moments in it that were very poignant because of when it happened. And that you get these kind of moments where you go, oh, yeah, and everyone has a bit of a, yeah. And it's almost like the end shot almost makes people want to applaud or something. So you have this quite a mass... That's a good sort of um, cinema experience, you know, of just this thing where all things have basically conspired... Including bad, sad, tragic things to make a film seem a bit more poignant than it might otherwise be.
1: Well, it was the end of 2016, so we'd had a terrible year. Uh, when did Carrie Fisher die? Well, Carrie it was Fisher died something, wasn't it? It was something. Like... Well, I went, I went to see it on Boxing Day. Hmm. So maybe, it, or maybe it was the day after Boxing Day. I think, I think it was Boxing Day. Did Carrie Fisher die on Boxing Day? And I think that it was it was. Oh, she died on the twenty seventh. So maybe I saw it the week after Boxing Day, two thousand sixteen. Um, I ju- I remember that she was dead. Oh no, maybe I saw it. Oh no, I said me and my family go and see went to see a Star Wars film on Boxing Day every year. Um, so I think that maybe um, we went to see it on Boxing Day, and I was just remember when she died, I was kind of like Carrie Fisher had sort of like a very kind of like. She was in some of the biggest films ever made yet she wasn't in many films and she, she wasn't predominantly known as a movie star and carrie fisher the person felt, felt like a different entity to princess leia it's like i could watch star wars but carrie fisher is more like carrie fisher when you see her in uh, when harry met sally or uh, Blues Brothers than she is as Princess... Do you know what I mean? It's kind of like Princess Leia is its own own thing. I almost don't associate Carrie Fisher with Princess Leia. Uh, So it's really kind of... It was poignant when she died and you knew that she was the number one movie in the international box office at that point. You know, there's kind of like a tribute to her in that film. It's kind of interesting. You watch it now, and uh, the CGI is terrible. And uh, uh, where well, it hasn't aged well on her or Peter Cushing. And you kind of, like, go... And now you've got deep fakes and stuff like that, and you kind of, like, go, well, there may have been a better way of doing it. Peter Cushing only looks like a cartoon of Peter Cushing. And it's kind of really weird. So, this is a bit. also, um, there's two... Of, there's One of my co-stars from... Loaded and one of my co-stars from Uncle both play uh, characters in uh, the Rogue One squadron um and there's this, this a couple of shots where they're stood next to each other and I'm watching it going I've worked with both of them <laughs> and it kind of like it does on a personal level drag you out a little bit but um uh, We've got to play a song, but maybe we just talk about films for the next 25 minutes. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I get these headaches. <laughs> I get
0: one every day. <laughs> Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Foo Bar Radio. And
1: we're back! <laughs> um, sorry, my girlfriend's just posted a horrific picture of me on Instagram and. Uh, uh, that has stunned me. Silent. <laughs> um, what are we talking about? We're talking about Rogue One. Um, yeah. Uh, what I think Rogue One was sort of promised to us. As I think it's a great. I think it's a great film. It might even be the best of the new Star Warses. Oh. But um, but I think that here I always watch films. And I feel like I can fix them. It would be nice to be able to give to, to go right. That's a great first draft, guys. But this is what you need to do to make it better. Mm. I think
0: um, a lot of it's surprising that as well, isn't it? Or it is like it is fan service, and it's that ah, oh, that's good. Like I my my favorite Star Wars is Star Wars. It isn't Empire Strikes Back. My favorite one is the original Star Wars. And I think when when a film like that kind of revisits it or you see the same bits from different angles or you see a sequence that takes place just before it or that sort of, it it kind of works for me on that level as well. And even things like, as someone who likes that Star Wars and is a big fan of Peter Cushing, when Peter Cushing shows up, you go, what? Peter Cushing's in? Oh, wow. And yet I think, like you say, I think it's the kind of thing that were I to revisit it I think what I initially got as a bit of a, oh, brilliant, will kind of just be a fact of seeing a CGI head or whatever. And I'd probably be a bit more like, oh, it's just like... A... So it's like the initial the initial burst of, like, dopamine or something where you go, oh, great, I think we'll have worn off if, if I see it again. So I'm not that keen to watch it again.
1: I, th- I think that's right. I think also it's kind of like... Um when the reality actually kicks in after the second viewing, you're kind of, like, less. You've got to actually um, judge it not on its spectacle but on its content. Mm. And we've had 40 years of watching Darth Vader say the same specific lines over and over again and the intonation of all of that. And he doesn't say a lot... So when he does speak, it sort of has an impact in the original trilogy. So when you see him in Rogue One the first time, you're like, oh, my God, it's Darth Vader. Oh, my God. Your head is screaming, going, it's Darth Vader. Oh, my God. And he's got, like, red lenses like he did in the first film and not in the sequels where they changed it to black. And, oh, my God, his costume looks incredible. Oh, my God, oh, my God. Oh, hang on a minute. I better, I better stop screaming in my head so that I can listen to what's going on. And then you do, oh, my God, he's talking. It's James Earl Jones. So he sounds a little bit older, but he's still there. And then got him back to do it. And then, so you've done that the first time, oh my God, it's Peter Cushing, oh my God, he looks a little bit weird, but like, and when you actually have, all of, the, all of that dies down in your head and you're re-watching it, you're just kind of like, you've just basically got a scene where you've got Darth Vader chatting, and you're kind of like going, I don't, I don't really need to have a scene where Darth Vader's standing around having a chat, and it's kind of like none of that dialogue really feels kind of like... Timeless, and then he adds like a little pun at the end, and you kind of go, Don't be careful not to choke on your aspirations. And you go, Yeah, cool, cool, because you're choking him. Yeah, yeah. But when did Darth Vader turn into Joe Pasquale? Do you know what I mean? It's kind of like, um, so it's sort of. And I'm not saying it in a negative way. I'm just like saying that the second time you watch it, you're kind of like going, OK, so what have they actually done here? And I think that Rogue One was sort of promised to us as like a Dirty Dozen movie. Or or um, I think what it kind of should have been, it should have been like Ocean's Eleven, mm. where, um, because I think, I think the flaw with the film is it's, it's got almost too much plot for it's got more plot in that film than the whole new trilogy did you know it's so complicated there's so much going on and it's very serious in tone even the comic relief which is the robot is kind of like subtle comic relief it's it's not kind of like... You've kind of like got to work at it to see the humour. I laughed for ages at some of the lines last night that the robot says. But it's not kind of like, here's a joke for you guys. You have to kind of like go, oh, that is a joke. And the tone of it is kind of slightly off. That You know, it's an offbeat humour that I really enjoyed. But it's not... It's not and because the rest of the film is so serious it's sort of weird to have any light relief in it anyway but but because the plot is so complicated and and the tone is so serious he um, and also the the it 's two and a half hours long, and they only really introduce the plot to steal the death star plans. They only go on that mission within the last hour within the last hour, so it 's less than an hour of the film is spent on that and then the ending is sort of tacked on because that was like a reshoot you know they filmed the whole film and they said we need something else at the end and then gareth edwards went in and he pitched the ending and you know there's some really great moments visually it looks great and it feels the closest to any star wars film what i love about it is the fact that it feels like they've actually made a war film this time Whereas it's not a film about Jedi's and how many lightsabers you can fit in it, which never really feels like a war film. The Jedi's were always an element to Star Wars. I didn't feel like they were the, they had to be, the own you know the driving force. So, but Je- but but people find Jedi's cool. Some people find Jedi's cool, and then that has I think that, that I think that has sort of ruined. Um, Star Wars, in a way, is kind of like people dictating what they think Star Wars should and shouldn't be. Uh, But I think that's what's ruined a lot of... um, uh, Well, it's not art, is it, anymore? It's kind of... It's what's ruined a lot of popular entertainment, uh, which, um, you know, I always think that if... When made turn to salvation... The plot was, at the end, to be revealed that John Connor gets killed and Marcus, the robot, uh, 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 takes over John Connor's body. So, John Connor, the saviour of humanity, dies at the end of Terminator Salvation, and then they take his skin and they wrap it around the Terminator, and then you've got a good Terminator that is uh, ruling uh, mankind, human resistance, and they're using him in very much a, a Christian Bale Batman way as uh, an icon rather than a human. And it's the iconography of John Connor that keeps the human resistance fighting rather than the man. They realise that the iconography is more important uh, for morale and hope. And that was like the ending of Terminator Salvation, where it's actually a Terminator that leads us to freedom. And you go, at least that's different. But then that got leaked online... And then, even though the whole film is leading up to that moment, and you can see it in its DNA that that is what the film is about, and that's what it's doing, th- got leaked online, and then they changed the ending at the last minute, reshot it. John Connor lives, the Terminator dies, and um, it was the only interesting thing that that film really had to offer. And they they changed it because fans like reacted really bad to it. And this show's called Fan Club. I think that. I don't want to be in the driving wheel of my franchises. I want, I want to see. You know, as much as I didn't like the sequel trilogy, um, I think that that was dictated to by what they thought. You know, that everyone said that the first one was too much, uh, too much, too similar to the original. So they said, "Well, you think that's too similar? Well, you wait until you see the next one. It's nothing like it." And <laughs> then that came out, and everyone was like, "Well, that's not nice that's that's nothing like the original." And they go, you, "You think? Well, don't you worry. When the third one comes along, uh, no one's going to be happy." And, and, and do you know what I mean? And so the whole sequel trilogy was dictated to by what the fans wanted. It was dictated know? to by how the fans reacted to the prequels. Fans you, are
0: fickle. It's the legacy of uh, Harry Knowles, ain't it? Cool News, who who was right at the time to kind of say, watching all these comic book adaptations and saying, this is nothing like the comic books. And then suddenly they realised there was a power to that. And a lot of these movies they were making, people weren't bothering to watch because they're going, terrible, the Catwoman movie is a terrible film, don't go and see it. And they realised we should listen to these fans and they can tell us. And then for a while, the film started to get better. And it's like, well, it's working. And now it's like they're too afraid to do anything that they feel is outside of what uh um a mass think like they're sort of built by committee a bit more now whereas you they're don't bit, get someone they're who they're brought... built
1: by they're built by international committee like everyone on the planet has got like a say-so, and it's kind of like, what? That's what happened with um, The Rise of Skywalker, which was kind of like, no, we hate The Last Jedi. No, we love The Last Jedi. And they were like, oh, God, well, let's make a film for people that like The Last Jedi and people that hate The Last Jedi. It's just kind of like, just make a fucking story and let people... You know, you've not done that once. All the fans uh, at the time hated the prequels... And then now there's been, like, this revisionist thing where people have gone, no, the prequels are actually quite good. They're still shit. They're, the, the, what, what, the, there are moments in the prequels that are quite good. There are moments in them that are some of the worst things I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. And also, um, but the thing that's different about the prequels and the sequels is the prequels are telling a story that is that's in, that's in the sand. They tell I mean, it badly, but,
0: even but even there's the a story. is a reaction to people's reaction to the prequels. Because
1: that that's go, what I'm oh, saying. So the whole sequel trilogy is a reaction to the fans. Like, imagine if they were making... Um, if the script for Back to the Future 2 got leaked when, you know, and people read it and said, well, we don't... Re-. It's kind of like, you've got to let the films be the films. You've got to let, you've got to let the people, you know... Um, Highlander 2. Highlander 2 is a film where basically the Highlander wasn't a big hit but they got a sequel, and so when they made Highlander 2, they were saying, like, well, let's make a sequel for people that didn't like the original. And it's kind of like, why? Why are, you, why are you doing that? You had your chance to win over an audience with the first film. You've got an audience now. Make a sequel for the people that liked the first film. Don't make a sequel for people that are still going, yeah, but we What are immortals? By the end of the film, if they're still asking that, then you've done the fucking first
0: film wrong. You fucked it. The people yeah. are going to go, oh, there's a new Highlander film out. I didn't like the first one. you got to watch it. No, as I say, I didn't like the first one, so I'm probably not going to bother watching this one.
1: With Highlander 2, they made a film that upset everyone that liked the first one and didn't win any new... Fa- you've just, like, you've absolutely fucked it. So, but I, I, so Rogue One is this film where it kind of like... Um, you don't love any... You don't love any of the characters. I think humour... I don't think that... I think the humour in The Last Jedi is awful. And it it sinks the film. You can do what you like with the story. I don't mind Luke being a hermit on an island. I don't mind... You know, you kill off whoever you want if it's servicing the story, right? If that's... You know, um, I think there's a way of doing it and a way of not doing it. Uh, And I don't think that they succeeded in the correct way of doing it. But... I don't have a problem. You tell the story you want to tell. But when you change the tone of the film and start a Star Wars joke, uh, start a Star Wars film with uh, Poe Demeron doing... Uh, uh, oh, yeah, I, I, I fucked your mum last night. Um, you kind of like go, what? what? What's, what's that doing in so You know, when you change characters beyond all recognition uh, between films that are set... Uh, chronologically over a weekend, you kind of, like, go, what? It's, it's," you know, that's... So you can use humour as a comedian. You can use humour to really important, impactful, great effects. And I think Rogue One could have done with um, one clear story where... The beginning of the f- first act is them putting a team together. Second act is them going on a mission. And yeah. third act is them in some sort of conflict where they all get killed off one by one. And you kind of like go, great, that's it. You need a campfire scene where someone says something funny and you get to know a little bit about them all. You know, make city slickers only where everyone dies, you know? It's kind of like, th- 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 kind of like a really simple thing where if you get us to love these characters and you put a bit of humour in there and, and and make the story a little bit simple, uh, m- you know, more simple, then the uh, you've got more time, you know? It's kind of like they're constantly telling uh, bits of a story um, and there's never any moment to just sort of, like, live in that kind of galaxy. There's two sequences where they land somewhere, uh, do something... And then, as they're leaving, the whole place blows up. Uh, and in actual fact, that happens three times, but on the third time, they don't leave, right? And they get blown up, right? Spoiler alert. Um, so they do the same thing three times. They do it at the beginning, when they go see Forrest Whitaker. They do it in the middle, when they go and see Mads Mikkelsen. And then they do it at the end, which is... The whole, you know, you've done the same thing three times in this film. Uh, my Siri has been alerted. Um, you see, He's done the same thing three times in, in one film. It's kind of like just have a simple, um, you know, get the gang to get, get the band together, stick them on a suicide mission, and then uh, and then set up this, the start, which is sort of what it was promised. And what we end up with is sort of like a little bit of an overcomplicated mess that looks absolutely phenomenal. I mean, I thought the Last Jedi was a good-looking film but I just think that Rogue One is probably the best-looking Star Wars film ever made.
0: There is a weird bit in Rogue One where, and it's in the trailer as well, where they're in, they go through Canary Wharf tube station. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and if you know Canary Wharf tube station, they haven't really done a lot to disguise that it is Canary Wharf tube station. But that's a tube station that looks a bit futuristic anyway. And I can also know Canary Wharf.
1: Yeah, and then straight after, you go, that's Jordan from Rizzle Kicks. Do you know what I mean? It's like... It, 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 but I think that that's great. That's like in the that's in the um, tradition of Star Wars. You know, they've got the Aztec temples from South America and um, uh, that's where they filmed the original Star Wars films and it's kind of like, yeah, and why would we build something that looks exactly like Canary Wharf, if we could just film in Canary Wharf. I love the fact that it's Canary Wharf and you can see it. There is that
0: bits in when you watch the um, Attack of the Clones uh, and Revenge of the Sith now, there's bits where they're running on absolutely nothing. There's no weight on the ground or anything. It's like a sort of... um, It looks like you're watching a Hanna-Barbera cartoon that's running at slightly the wrong speed of where Yogi Bear's walking or whatever. It's like you have this like background moving at different a different rate to where they're walking, and it's like, just have a floor. Just, like, put them on a floor. (laughs) It's like they're on travelators or something. They just walk really hard.
1: It's mental, because when you look at Phantom Menace, what was sort of really cutting edge was the fact that he only built the sets to head height and he finished the ceilings off later. Huh. Which, when you look at a lot of old films, they used to do that all the time with map paintings. Yeah. So all he's doing is their digital map paintings. When you look at Attack of the Clones, it's basically like watching an episode of Nightmare, <laughs> where <laughs> they're all just sort of, like, walking around on green screen, and you're like... And it's not even good green screen, and you're just kind of like, going, why? Why have you not given them a thing? Yeah. Uh, like it's, it's yeah it's it, it's it's shit. Um, that's all, what can I say about that? It's shit. Um, I, I really like I really like Rogue One, but I, um, when it has to be judged on its own merits by the second or third time you watch it, I think. Um, it is it is flawed, but I think that I'd rather a film had too much story than a trilogy with no story.
0: Yeah. Uh, and mean, thing. Oh, it sits really well in my mind, but I know, like, my mind is also niggling bits of it. Like you were saying, I can imagine it's not... There are bits of it that I loved first time round that I might be a bit more sceptical about now.
1: I also think that it was a really great experience watching it at the cinema, and I haven't watched it since, yeah. and that isn't a hundred percent because I 've been saving it as a memory yeah. it's been because i haven't fancied yeah. watching it, and to be honest, um, I watched it yesterday because um, uh, I watched it yesterday because it was like, if we get this done by seven o'clock, we can watch something else
0: later. Yes, yeah, and also, having, like a an fun experience, having a fun experience at the cinema is is perfectly valid as well. Lots of people only ever see that film once and have probably mm. had a really great time. That's not invalid. Loads of films, uh, the majority of films I've seen ever, I've seen once, and that's the experience of that film for me. So, you know, that's good. That's still good, it's yeah. still valid.
1: And um, I'm, I'm watching it from a completist point of view, so we've watched that, uh, got Solo to watch, and I'm going to try and find the Ewoks movies and watch that Clone Wars uh, pilot that was a feature yeah. pilot that released at the cinema. Yeah. Um, but there you go. So I've, I think we've got another few. I don't think the Star Wars holiday special counts, but... Uh, that's uh, that's unwatchable. Anyway, so uh, we're going to do a fan mail now. Uh, that hour has gone by pretty quick, hasn't it? it? Has, it's not just it has. right Not um, at all.
0: So, uh, yeah, for feel? me and you. How do you feel, listeners? <laughs> <laughs> right. In uh, and say,
1: do you know what? If it's dragging, then you're welcome. Yeah, you know, we're extending your life.
0: Not oh, now. Dear Nick, excuse me, dear Nick and Nat, how are you doing? I recently got into yoga and meditation. I really recommend it, especially right now with everything that's going on. What do you do to feel better during lockdown, Lucy?
1: I've just started making uh, picture frames.
0: I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think yeah, this makes me feel better every week. I think uh, <laughs> doing fan club always makes me feel better.
1: Cheers, I, me. I up. like... I like... Uh, you know, uh, I mean... Um, yeah, I could always... We always end up talking... We're not always, sometimes we've got stuff to do, but we always end up talking longer. We talk to each other for two hours... And then Natalie joins in at the end, and then we always end up chatting for a bit longer. And if it was the real world, I would have visited you in a comic bookshop or, uh, or a cinema, or we'd have gone to the cinema and we'd have gone to the pub afterwards. And it's great to see you every week and to have those two hours where we've got this thing. Um, and then, yeah, I've been learning how to... I've spent so much money on picture frames... I've literally, I've got an addictive personality, so I'm framing stuff, I'm buying pictures of stuff that I love, and I'm framing them, I'm running out of wall space, and I bought these odd-shaped prints, and it was kind of like, okay, I'm going to have to spend money on getting some specific frames made, and then I just looked at a couple of YouTube videos, and I bought the equipment, and now I'm sort of like making them. And they're kind of weird, it's a skill that I'm not improving at. I thought I was, and then last night was a shocker where I made two terrible frames. Um, So it's a skill that you need to sort of, like, concentrate on fully while you're doing it. And I'm doing it without any electrical tools. So I've got, like, a miter, which is where you you set stuff to um, do right angles and... uh, 45 degree angles and stuff I've got a mitre box that I'm using with a handsaw so I'm doing it fairly kind of um, primitively uh, and they're looking alright I, I put on enough filters on Instagram to make them look like I've done a good job but um, yeah I, I'm, at the end of it I look at the picture that I've just framed and I feel a sense of achievement and calm and I feel like really like happy you know for the for the hour and a half it takes me to make a frame I'm sort of completely spellbound by it and in the zone and at the end of it I've got a product and I'm like it makes me happy to do that so that's what I've been doing Nathaniel um
0: I was saying doing this really I mean I've been oh yeah you know trying to uh try to tidy up and clear some stuff out and that actually does make me feel better when I've managed to do that actually
1: yeah Platter. Yeah, That's the same, but but because you're at home the whole time, you're like it's like living in a hamster cage. It's kind of yeah. like the amount of the amount of rubbish that you uh, aren't aware that you accumulate in the daily in daily life. Even like when you we've got to bring our guest on soon, um, but even when um, uh, you're you're a kid and you're living at your parents' house and you're being fed every day. You know, this, the rubbish that you accumulate just disappears. Mm. When you're an adult and you've got to be confronted in your house by the amount of rubbish that you're accumulating every day, it's kind of like, it's disgusting. Um, hey, Nick and that, I recently watched The Matchmaker on Netflix. Have you watched it? It's about a lady that sets up arranged marriages. I know it sounds weird, but it's really cool. She's basically a human Tinder.
0: What do you think Cheers, John? Never seen it. Not seen it. I like first dates and things like that, but I've not seen The Matchmaker.
1: I like hear... No, I like Don't Tell the Bride. Uh, that's what I would watch. And more than that, I like watching Grand Designs. That's my favourite. Um, all right, let's uh, play a song, and then we'll bring our, uh, our guest on.
0: And Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Foo Radio. And we're back!
1: We're back! We're back live. We're not live, but we're as live. And we're in uh, the studio. We're not in the studio. I'm in my uh, sp- uh, spare room, and Nat is in his uh, washroom. And uh, we're joined now uh, by Impressionist Extraordinaire, uh, Mr. John Coleshaw. Hello. How are you doing? Very well, very well. Lovely to join you on the show today. Thanks for having me on. Thank you, for, thank you for coming on. I feel a little bit underdressed in terms of uh, my background today. I normally have so much going on on my walls, and I had to do a self-tape audition this week, so I had to take <laughs> my stuff down. So I had a blank wall. And your background is incredible, John. Uh, you've got loads going on. I know there's a
2: few there's a few sort of old fashioned mirrors and those little copper clocks that you get from emporiums, and um, different times of the year the sun sets and it goes that you get a different reflection as the year passes. So that's the idea behind all that. Uh, do
1: you do you collect mirrors? I because we I literally we were just talking about the fact that I am. Um, Um, I have, like, an addictive personality where I collect picture frames. I've started making picture frames. I get obsessed about stuff. Uh, So do you collect mirrors?
2: There's something quite interesting about some of them, some of them with a little copper hue and beveled edges and the sense of age. And the, the fact that they reflect the sunlight and capture different atmospheres. So uh, I, I don't know whether I'm a collector, but I've ended up with quite a few of them for, uh, for those sorts of purposes, you know, for the atmosphere-setting purposes.
1: They make you... They, they can also make your uh, room look bigger. Um, do you know what I mean? They, gi- they give a sense of space as well. Yes,
2: exactly. I remember uh, staying in a, a hotel in, in Luton in the late 90s the, the size of the room itself must have been half as big again as a sort of a box room that we remember from the you know the nineteen eighties. But the use of mirrors gave it the feeling of infinity. It, it was the closest I've ever got to dimensional transcendentalism, and it was in a Luton travelodge in the late nineties. You know, <laughs> um, well, the, the the
0: mirrors actually the, the, of quite ornate antique mirrors. I, I, I sort of put me in mind of the film Dead of Night, which has a uh. mirror story, and it also has a, a story about a ventriloquist dummy who may or may not come to life, which kind of brings us neatly on. It's done very well there, I think. Well, oh, yes, now there. Of the, of the, <laughs> the play that you're currently in. Or, well, I was going to ask you about that, which is Billy and Me is your, um, your monologue within it, but there are four different... Um, monologues within the play, which is, um, it's Barnes's people, isn't it? It's um... Yeah, that's it.
2: Yeah, the writer, the writer Peter Barnes, he, he wrote these, um, well, they, they were first broadcast about 40 years ago on Radio 3, um, Barnes's people and then another set, more Barnes's people. And, um, writing these monologues, I suppose they're comparable in some ways to an Alan Bennett Talking head. But I think Peter Barnes' writing was a little bit more unpredictable, um, a little more spiky in places. And Where an Alan Bennett talking head might be played over several weeks, for example, um, these are just in the moment, in real time, uh, as if you're sitting there and a half hour speech unfolding. It's written in that sort of way. Hmm. Um, and yes, they, they ring true perhaps even more so now than they did
1: 40 years ago.
0: I mean, it's scary to think. I saw, I've watched your one this morning and I've watched uh, Matthew Kelly's one uh, and I haven't had a chance to watch the others yet. Um, but it's scary, as you said that, because my brain immediately went, no, no, I think, it, I think they're from 1980. Because in my head, you go, oh, yeah, I guess that is 40 years ago. Even though I'm born in 79, I sort of go, that, that seems incredible to think that these things, I think of a still quite recent history, are 40 years old.
2: Yeah, I mean, time is really up to some tricks. The 1980s <laughs> feels about, I don't know, 12 years ago. Isn't <laughs> the year 2000 was 20 years ago. That just doesn't feel right at all. <laughs> uh, then the tracks of time are being greased. Something's going on. Something's going on with space-time, I'm sure. <laughs>
0: I think, um, but I think that's an interesting point. That's a good um, when you're saying it. They are different from something like Alan Bennett's Talking Heads because they are in the now. And the Matthew Kelly one is him at a graveside, and he's talking to someone who's passed away. And so it mm-hmm. does feel like it's in it is in real time. And it has a dramatic reason for him to be speaking out loud, as does yours, which is you're a ventriloquist talking to your dummies. I was mm-hmm. talking to, or talking to yourself. And it has a nice element, because it's sort of, like I was saying, it, it's immediately reminiscent of something like Dead of Night. And you think it's, and a very similar thing's happening, but it's not necessarily, it's not horror. It's, it's actually quite a positive uh, relationship he has talking to his various ventriloquist dummies.
2: Yes, it is very positive. It sort of brings to mind, you know, when we were kids, perhaps we had imaginary friends, or you'd talk to your teddy bear or action man or some other sort of action figure, your Spider-Man figure. You'd give them this life, and it came from your own imagination. And this character in the play Billy and Me, uh, Michael Jennings, the ventriloquist, he's um, a seasoned entertainer, the old school pro. You know, he would have worked with Jimmy Tarbuck, Bob Monkhouse, Larry Grayson in his time. Um, and he's that kind of performer. Reading the script, it sort of brought to mind at times the likes of Spike Milligan, Peter Sellers. They're very spontaneous, very inventive, but they're also troubles, so they have their demons in certain ways in certain places, and although they've dealt with them, sometimes they just have to keep their, you know, just be mindful to keep these things at bay. And the spontaneous inventive humour and giving voice to the puppets sort of becomes his own distraction, his own counselling, his own therapy, just for those moments. And we watch it over that arc. The, the, The conversation just sort of becomes detached from its moorings, really. Um, as he brings these characters to life, By would it's more complex than I thought. <laughs>
1: um, how did how did how did this how did this uh, come about? How did uh, obviously it obviously materialise during lockdown?
2: Yeah, um, yes, it was. We filmed them about uh, I think it was three weeks ago now. Um, all of us separately, all on our own day. Uh, me on the theatre. A stage five people out in, in the auditorium which reminds me of many earlier gigs you know those sorts of nights <laughs> um and it I, I was invited to do it by the producer david morley who a few years ago i'd done a, a radio play um called uh, The Final Take, Bowie in the Studio, where I portrayed David Bowie at the time of the making of the Black Star album. So I, 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 knew, um, I knew David Morley from that. And he got in touch saying, you know, there's this piece here, lots of ventriloquist dummies, different voices required. This could be right up your street, do you fancy it? So uh, I just read it immediately and I could just see all of these different personas firing off in all sorts of directions. And, yeah, it was intriguing, intriguing, especially being 40 years old.
0: Yeah, do you see it as a period piece in that way? Do you think of it? Because it did not strike me... I mean, I suppose uh, ventriloquism is kind of like... I mean, we do have sort of brilliant ventriloquists now, but it does feel like a slightly... something from a slightly earlier time. Uh, and it's funny when you're saying you're comparing the character of someone who would have worked with Bob Monkhouse and... But, i didn 't think of it immediately like a period piece, but I suppose something that would have been a contemporary piece of writing in one thousand nine hundred and eighty now does feel like oh of course it 's now yeah. now an old an old play
2: <laughs> yeah exactly we 're starting to see those differences, uh, things that feel perhaps quite recent to us now there are those elements where oh yes that, that is a period piece that does a part of that can lend itself to another era. Mm -hmm. Not not so much as a Victorian one, for example, where everything's completely different. But these elements, which are different and yet quite similar to now, does make it a a very fascinating piece. The 1980s are just on this borderline of becoming historic, and yet so much is so similar.
1: Especially when you think about 1980, because that is kind of... um... Vaudeville was sort of still around in the 70s where people like Groucho Marx... And when did Charlie Chaplin die? I mean, it's kind of like... It's, it's the tail end of Vaudeville, and 80s is kind of like this... Or the early 80s is like a period in entertainment where people are trying to find their to, in uh, to progress to the 21st century. And then in the 80s, sort of like... Um, uh, the entertainment industry changed so much in England and in America, uh, and styles changed so much in the 1980s. It was kind of like, if it's 40 years ago, it was at the end of an era, or it's the end of um, a chapter in entertainment history and the beginning of another one. So when you think about ventriloquism, it, sort of, well, it was a vaudeville act, really. Mm. Um, yeah,
2: yeah, ex- ex- exactly. And it had to become more inventive as, as time went on. I think that's led us to, you know, we see uh, Nina Conti now, who is so inventive and uh, incandescently creative,
0: turns it all around. Well, and what she does is most popular as well, isn't it? Yeah, it's, yeah. It, exactly. Yeah. It's not yeah. I was sort of thinking that when I was a kid, I would still have on TV, you would have Ray Allen and Lord Charles, which mm-hmm. is a traditional ventriloquist. That is not... It's not at all reinvented, and yet at the same time, you do have alternative comedy happening, and you're getting no, the tail no. end no. of this kind of growing up with the fairy tale end of this sort of yeah. Guess, vaudeville, yeah, and, and sort of variety acts It would have been on the bill um, in the fifties upwards. I guess it's a funny time to have lived through. Now you think think back on it, and such a strange. Yeah, no
2: to watch it happening. I suppose in the 70s, you know, come 1976, 1977, that was when music had its punk era. And I suppose from 1982 onwards, with, you know, the young ones and that alternative comedy, as it was called, comedy had its punk era then as well. So, and so much of the 80s put in place and shaped the way we are now. There was certainly a before-and-after feel to it, wasn't that? Very much. But then
1: you, had the, you had the young ones that were coexisting with uh, people like Russ Abbott. And I loved Russ Abbott, but Russ Abbott, when you look back at it, definitely feels sort of like... That style of comedy definitely feels... like It's not even kind of like anything like mainstream comedy now. It's not... Russ Abbott isn't like the 80s equivalent of Ant and Deck. It's kind of. It feels so much like a hangover from the seventies. Mm. It's yeah. It's. it's I mean, and it, well, just one of the things that I'd never considered is that Keith Harris was a ventriloquist, but Rod Hull wasn't. Mm-hmm. Rod Hull had a puppet. no sorry, I'm having like. <laughs> 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 I'm having a moment. However, <laughs> well, Matthew Corbett. Matthew Corbett. Wasn't a ventriloquist; he was a puppet, a puppeteer, because could uh,
0: didn't speak. he could speak; you just couldn't hear it. So he was—he was—he right. he was doing it at a very low, low volume. But he was—he was. Okay. He, well, yes, he had to mess. go like that, didn't yeah. he? Yeah. What did you say, Sutty?
2: Well, you put pie on a sweet face. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what have you done that for? Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. <laughs> okay. um, he, um, well, yes, Rod, Rod Hull and Eam, you know, <laughs> there was... Uh, as Michael Parkinson said, oh, "Dear that bloody bird, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear." <laughs>
1: that's a that's a really good Michael Parkinson.
2: <laughs> it's, it's one of those. It, it, it's one <laughs> of those. Uh, Since uh, it, it's one of those where really the body language changes, and, and the, the first question will start, and it will sort of come in uh, this sort of rhythm, and at the end of the question. It, might probably just slow down a little, perhaps to make the to make the to make the answer more more prominent. I, I don't know. Did
0: Billy Connolly, who said on that clip where he says, "If that bird comes near me, I'll break your arm and his neck." <laughs> <Yes>.
2: <laughs> exactly.
1: <laughs> I think with, with Billy Connolly, it's one
0: of
2: those uh, such is his great energy. You only need to say the punchline, not the whole joke. and It's still just as funny. I needed somewhere to park my
0: bike. That's all you need. You don't need the front of the gag. That bit will do fine. And the, um, this monologue was originally uh, performed on Radio 4. And again, that's another funny idea to have. I was almost trying to imagine it. We, we see it as like um, we've got the, the visuals with it. But it's almost difficult to imagine it as a radio piece. I mean, I guess it would have had to be very obviously different voices, and very mm. obvious that the characters of ventriloquists going into it. And I'd almost, I found it difficult to imagine it as a as a radio play. Yes, I'd love to hear how it was formatted. I've not actually heard that uh,
2: that original one. I sort of came to it with a without any preconceptions. But yes, I wonder the palettes well, would have had to be really, you know, standing out like. I suppose, the, the way it was done. Just sort of separating them out. One of them, you know, the little Billy character, like a mix between David Beckham and Delboy. Boy. <laughs> uh, the, the, the army mails, some sort of a cross between Brigadier Lethbridge Stewart and somebody in the House of Lords, I don't know. But yes, in radio, I wonder how it was... Um, I, I must... Yeah, I, I must see exactly It's how.
1: cheating. do you think it's cheating if it's radio? If you can't see... If you can't see the work being done by a ventriloquist, you might as well just have two different people doing it.
2: Yeah, there was the, the, uh, you know, Educating Archie was ventriloquism on the radio, wasn't it? And uh, and I I think um, the fellow once asked, you know, can you see my lips moving? And somebody answered him, only when Archie's speaking. (laughs) 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 But um,
0: I read originally that it was Alan Rickman on the radio, yes. right? yes, yeah,
2: wow. wow, that hack, that hack. <laughs> good heavens! Good heavens! Forty years ago, you know the um, wow. That's in, that's incredible. That's incredible.
0: And so you deliberately so did, didn't revisit it, is that right? So you didn't want to have that in your head, perhaps?
2: Um, <clears throat> once it was all, once I'd recorded my uh, my take on it. It was only afterwards that I started to learn so much more about it, because it had all been done pretty quick. It was just Mm -hmm. a case of read it, rehearse it, and and do it in the next couple of days. Afterwards, that was when I learned of all the heritage to it. (laughs) I performed this before, and I thought, my goodness gracious, good grief. And it was astonishing to learn all these things.
1: That Alan Rickman did it before you, and it's like he did fucking what? <laughs> uh,
2: <laughs> I Deserve to be in such exalted company, you know.
1: Um, <laughs> i I think that that must be um, that. I I think I would prefer that to not know so much going in, so that I could just treat it. Because even it's it's impossible. Um, it's impossible to do stuff like that with. Yeah, if you're doing, like, a famous part that has been performed in the past by um, generations of uh, performers, it's impossible to go into something kind of, like, um, free of all of that. So to sort of, like, be rushed into something, I think I'd probably prefer that. Because then you're more instinctive and you're not trying to Mm second-guess other performances.
2: Yes, you've just got your first reaction to it, and that's what that's what leads you to it.
0: You've um, come into a bit of um, Alan Rickman. You might, would, would that have uh, been at the back of your mind? Would you, would you have instinctively made your voice like uh, Alan Rickman's, maybe?
2: I'm sure, it, I'm sure it would have played a, a part, uh, either to an influence to be a little bit like it or to deliberately keep away from it. Yeah. Um, so in that sense... I'm glad that it, it is still there for me to listen to an experience. And I look forward to doing that. But, and yeah, I think it would have been...
0: How do people see it?
2: All them. right. Yes, uh, simply go to uh, originaltheatre.com and people can... You, you buy your ticket there, and then you can thereby stream it afterwards. And once you've got it, it's, it's always there. Bill like buying a DVD. Rather, you, you don't pay for each time you watch, like a, a theatrical performance. Um, so that's the, way, uh, that's the way it works uh, by our original theater. And it's just lovely to be involved with something whereby the theaters can answer back. This is something that the theaters can do um, to, to overcome uh, the situation that they've been in for such a long time. Sleeping giants, as the theaters are. Just for this period, it was. It was. There was something about being inside the theatre, especially the Theatre Royal Windsor. The, these places of such great, great age, and, and a wisdom and a sense of experience just woven into the fabric of the walls, the very place. And if the theatre could speak, I'm sure it would say, "We have seen similar things like this before." These are the tides of time. It shall pass, and we shall rally once again. Keep your mind to be patient. I wonder if they'd sound like a great Jedi creature like that. In my imagination, they'd better. <laughs> I,
0: I hope so in a theatre. If they can't sound like it in a theatre, where can
2: they? Yes, exactly. I think that's, that is the voice of a theatre. There was something about, um, something about Matthew Kelly's performance, actually, that I found very evocative of Ian McKellen. There was a sense of Ian McKellen about it with a, a different kind of avuncular loveliness to it, which was intriguing.
1: What are some of the differences that you find between um, acting and, uh, and doing an impression of, of someone? Because they're obviously kind of different skills, aren't they?
2: Yeah. Yes, I think uh, with impersonations, and particularly where they tend to happen most uh, in sketch comedy, such as *Dead Ringers*, uh, it's a quick hit. The sketch is a-, a bank job, if you like. It's in and it's out. Uh, you want the setup quick and nice and clear, then you're going for the punchline, a little twang of recognition, and you're out of there again. And then it's on to the next one, and the process repeats. So th- there's there's less time to really just let the character and let the story infuse. Whereas over a longer spell, you've got that luxury of just letting it breathe, uh, getting to know the character and just telling the truth of them, making them ring true with all the nuances that collect. And I I do find that fascinating. And I love to watch others do it. Michael Sheen, for example, and let a piece breathe over the whole time of of a feature. Thoroughly enjoy
1: that. But, I mean, with, but, but with acting, you're kind of like you're creating your own character and with impressions, uh, you have a living, breathing blueprint of what you're aiming for. And, and so you're kind of like, restri- I guess you're sort of like um, restricted in some respects, but it's also very creative, isn't it, in, in terms of caricaturing people because it's up to you to pick what those elements are of that person that make them who they are.
2: Yes, exactly. This is why impressionists always love to get together and compare notes, because we'll always have noticed something different about a, a character. If ever I bump into um, Rory Bremner, for example, we'll, we'll talk about various characters, Michael Gove, Tony Blair, Boris, Trump, whoever it is. We will all have tended to notice a different element to them, um, which makes... <laughs> An impression is part of whoever's doing it, you know, their base observation, um, their, their instinct. But with, with acting, it's you're reading a script and, and the script might remind you of any number of people. And um, your instinct just lands on the one that rings true and feels right and flows. A gut instinct is uh, such a lot of it.
0: It's interesting, Nick brought up caricature then, which I thought was an interesting way of thinking about it. Because when you're talking about, I've not heard the, the Bowie uh, play you did, but that's interesting because you think, well, that's a real person and you're playing a real part. So therefore, you don't want to make a caricature that you would in a sketch. You are trying to create a character who's a real person who we all know, and it's very distinctive how they sound. We all know how he speaks. Um, and that's a, that's a different thing again, right? So that's, that's both acting and it's an impression but you're playing a character, right? So
2: how does that differ? Yeah, that, that, that's the thing. It's still impressions, but once again, you're not aiming for the exaggeration. You're not aiming for a punchline. It's just very much more understated, and you're just letting the, the story and the moments guide you. And that, that's why it's so interesting portraying a character over a longer period. Um, and I remember... Um, first doing the the research for that uh, David Bowie play. And th- there was a fantastic documentary <laughs> called Verbatim that was um, that was in the archive uh, somewhere. And th- this was Bowie just being interviewed and speaking in a, in a very relaxed and um, a manner of giving all this recollection. And uh, all of these... There was one lovely piece of wisdom that he said, which... Um, this was the first clip I looked at, and it was so lucky to see this one first because uh, it's a gorgeous piece of wisdom. And Bowie said, "If you feel safe in the area that you're working in, you're probably not working in the right area. Always go a little further into the water than you feel you're capable of being in. Go a little bit out of your depths, and when you feel you're not, you feel you aren't quite touching the bottom, then you're just in the right place to do something exciting." Which was a gorgeous piece of wisdom.
1: That's a the- really, really good David Bowie. I've, done it for, I've not done it for a while.
2: But, yeah, it's I mean, it's, uh, it's just that sort of way where, you know, talking about ideas and just letting that flow and just letting all of that come together. But there was a, a, a vibe to the musicians. I just bedded in with them and we, we just found this groove really easily. <laughs> and a little laughter that would come in like that, you know, as uh, as the idea being concentrated. <laughs> <laughs> that was a lovely space to occupy. It's really no nice.
0: Difficult, right? Because I guess that's a thing where it's so close. We're so used to hearing impressions for the purpose of making us laugh, but to, to, to hear it and do, do you ever kind of accidentally while you're doing it have to stop yourself and feel like, oh, it is a little bit caricaturish now. I should pull back or...
2: Yeah, so, so, sometimes, you know, you, you might end up do, doing that and you might... Uh, I, I might... Um... You know, I might have been doing, doing, you know, just going go through a little bit of speeds, and then t- no, no, I'm not going. No, don't go there. That's not where we want to be. Okay, back on, back on track here. That. So, yeah, you might just have to stop yourself. You can, you can feel when the proportion of it is is wrong.
1: It's interesting. I saw um, the Al Pacino movie Phil Spector at the weekend, and um, I don't know anything about Phil Spector. Um, except for the headlines and uh, and the music but I don't know, I don't, I don't know wh- what he sounded like what um, he even really looked like um, so Al Pacino coming in he never felt to be anything other than Al Pacino it was weird it's like, like Al Pacino is an amazing actor obviously and sometimes he disappears into his, his roles earlier more than later I suppose but with this one it was like it's Al Pacino in a wig being Phil Spector do you feel like people like Al Pacino are coming along and stealing your jobs?
2: <laughs> it's, a, it, it's a very different uh, take on it. I, I suppose maybe some people would say you want there to be a little bit of uh, Al Pacino-ness within the gravitas. Some would say that's perhaps an interesting cocktail to have a Pacino version and take upon a character and have that energy to it it's another way of doing it it is it's it's another way of of doing it um pacino certainly can convey a sense of unpredictability of danger of the unexpected of of hidden you know he could play all of that maybe that's where the, the the essence of it was there
1: also, also, he's got so much baggage. Uh, he play, he's played a lot of violent characters in the past. And this film is weirdly... Sorry that we're talking about Phil Spector now. But this film is weirdly kind of sympathetic. to. It was made in 2013, I think. Mm. And it's kind of this weirdly sympathetic film where, as, when you cast Al Pacino, he automatically comes with Scarface and The Godfather and all these other films with him that you kind of, like, even though they're not portraying that part of him, he's bringing a certain amount of baggage with him that you can't really ignore while you're watching it. Mm. Um, I haven't seen all that, that background
2: radiation feeding into it somehow. Mm. Yeah. What's
0: your background in acting, John?
2: Oh, goodness. Uh, it's something I've only just sort of... Moved across into in in recent years, really, it was always sketch comedy. I, I used to be uh, I used to be a DJ on regional radio, and then that sort of evolved into doing voiceovers and and comedy appearances. Then that led to Ted Ringer's, which brought a, a performance on on radio and and TV, and that broadened out into those times of playing a character over the full. Length of a a particular program or a feature, so it's still, um, it's still sort of evolving, really.
0: I guess Um, I think that's interesting. So, I guess there is, I'm not an actor, Nick Nick acts, um, but I, I guess you could one way of doing it would be to think, well, I'll, yeah, like you're saying, I could play Al Pacino playing this character, or I could put which is a way of doing it, and you do see sometimes there's things like, um I'm thinking of specifically something like in the gangs of New York, Daniel Day-Lewis appears to be playing Robert De Niro playing the character. And I know that's who Martin Scorsese had in mind first. And in my mind, it's like, that's definitely informed the way you've played that character because it's almost that you go, oh, right, it was a De Niro part. Daniel Day-Lewis will be Robert De Niro playing in the gangs of New York or something. It has that sort of element to it
2: you could take that somewhere else. Yeah. You could play uh, you, you could play Ken Barlow from Coronation Street as Russell Crowe. I think <laughs> I'm... Yes, Deirdre. I've returned from the rovers. I found Deirdre, you have wronged me. Mike Baldwin. Michael Baldwinius, he's a scoundrel. He will be avenged. I'm going to speak to Rita Ralph Roberts. <laughs> <laughs>
0: You're saying that you get together with other Impressionists. And I think that when you see someone doing an impression of someone who you know how they sound, but you've never actually heard them do an impression before, it feels like that's the key. Do you know what I mean? As soon as someone's nailed it, it feels that it almost gives everyone else license to go, oh, I can see how you could get to that voice now. It's the alchemy in between, which is the bit that if you've never heard it done before, I feel it's a lot harder. Is that right? Does it, is it a bit like that, where as soon as one person's nailed it, you can all go, got it, I could do that too.
2: Yeah, I think there is an element of um, you see the road that's been travelled, and you go, oh yes, I see you've picked on that
1: bit, that bit, and that bit.
2: Then you've almost got to look for other things. You always need to find your own take on a particular character. In the, In the 70s, Mike Yarwood was the first to say, you know, ooh, Betty, or you dirty rat. And so many other impersonators at that time did exactly what Mike Yarwood was doing. You've got to find your own take on it and find your own find your own idea.
1: Um, well, it's like um, in the 90s with Barry Norman, his catchphrase was, and why not? And Barry Norman was always like, I've never said that. <laughs> <And it> was- <laughs> yes, Exactly. It's kind of like lots of Impressionists were kind of like, oh, yeah, well, that's how you do Barry Norman. And then um, it's, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Cause it is. Where those
2: phrases come from when the person's never said them? Scylla only said Laura, Laura after many impressions of her doing it. She sort of picked up that mantle and ran with it then. <laughs> yes, where they come from. That, that's interesting with Barry Norman. He, he, he I don't think he particularly said, uh, you know, and why not? Too much, but it just sounded right coming from him. Just sort of fitted with his character somehow.
0: I don't. I mean, I think if I was ever trying to do an, uh, an accent or an impression, there's sometimes like certain phrases that can get you into the the kind of mindset. And as soon as you've said that thing, you can do it but it's almost like you need to... It's like a magic word or something. It's like uh, in order to get into it. Do you have those with anyone?
2: Uh, Very often, the first phrases when you're learning a new character will be things just like that. Uh, Tony Blair, for example, uh, the phraseology that I, I, I learned his voice by was the wheels on the bus go round and round, round and round, round and round. The wheels on the
0: bus go round and round all day long. It's fascinating. I'm trying to think what
2: it was with 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 Donald Trump. I think it was. I'm trying to think what it was. I think it was halfway down the stairs. Is the stair where I sit. (laughs) There isn't any other stair quite like it. (laughs) Something like that.
1: It's been so long since I've heard his voice.
2: Yeah, (laughs) it's. It's. I'm sorry to have taken (laughs) the. Sorry. Oh, it's good to have him out the road. (laughs)
1: <laughs> so, so you started out on radio, um, yeah. but uh, were you interested in doing impressions when you, before, before your, your professional career, or uh, is it, was it a radio thing and then you focused on your voice and then uh, work sort of evolved from there, or was, were impressions sort of like something that you had on your back burner and then came into play?
2: I think it, it was much more like that, actually, a backburner then coming into play. I, I never thought it would be any kind of career thing at all, particularly. I would simply do impressions of local characters. Um, a local farmer called Tommy Shack Yeah, you're right, lad. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, Stanley up the road like that. You know, a lovely, lovely Lancashire accent. curled up round the edges, you know. Or Patrick Moore, having watched The Sky at night one uh, Wednesday afternoon. And I copied these people, and it would just make the family laugh around the dinner table. Or it would just make people laugh at school. Um, and it just seemed to be rather a pleasant thing. Years later, I volunteered at the local hospital radio station. And doing a, doing a two-hour show on a Sunday night, it was quite a nice little party trick at times to just sprinkle in a Frank Gruner or a, or a Bob Geldof. Um and that's where it started to come along. And I I was working at Viking Radio in Hull in about 1990. And I think I read the weather's uh Frank Brunard said the very strong western wind persist in a lot of heavy showers. So mind how you go out there. Wicked. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> and uh <laughs> Wicked. The receptionist Anne-Marie said Never In this beautiful Hull accent. Never mind, you know, talking in between the records. Why don't you make them voices, your job? Why don't you do it then? And I was 21 at the time, and I thought, OK, maybe I'll give this to try. And one of the fellows um, in the advertising department, a chap called Paul Sather, he used to write copy for the commercials. He used to write the adverts. But he could also churn out a few nice little gags. So... Uh, He and I in a pub one day, or or over a couple of days, wrote a little three-minute routine. And I thought, I'll I'll get out there and I'll I'll try this out. I'll try this out. And that was where I sort of focused on, right, okay, I'll I'll do voices. I'll try and be like uh, Bobby Davro or Mike Yarwood or Rory Bremner, who was just starting to establish very strongly then. And that, that was how everything played out. But to start with, as you were describing, it was just for a bit of fun, really, just for a bit of merriment. No more thought to it than that.
1: And how, how long does it take to... Um, I've been watching Who Wants to Be a Millionaire repeats on the Sony channel for the majority of lockdown. I think I've seen every episode of Chris Tarrant doing Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, and I got stuck talking like Chris Tarrant for two days straight. Um, but it took, it, took a while to, it took a while to get to um, uh, peak Tarrant, you know, I didn't get there straight away. How long does it take you to, um, to, to, to like chisel away at it until you're unmistakably that character? And I'll also, I want to hear a bit of your,
2: I want to hear a bit of your, I'm
1: I'm not doing it. I'm not doing, no, no. That would be like, uh, doing an impression of Robert De Niro to Robert De Niro. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> but, um, but like, it, it's like, um, also, do you ever get to a point where you're doing, you know, you've got to change gears, and so it takes you a couple of moments to go, like, oh, hang on a minute, I can't do the voice. How do you do that voice? Because you slipped into Frank Bruno really easily just then, and, uh, and David Bowie. So once you've... Obviously, it takes a while to get to that, to, to find the voice and to get to that voice. How easy is it to just slip into that voice again, once you've worked it out?
2: If you really know them well and you've been doing them for years such as such as Bruno or, um, or or other characters, then pretty quickly you can get them. They're all in the back of your neck. And I'd visualise the process as, uh, do you remember those films of the 1950s and those telephone operators where they plug in the little wires right. and into little compartments? And it's just, you, you click, something clicks in your mindset, and it's Frank Bruno. Or another one might be Chris Eubank. Or maybe uh, Pete Tarrant is uh, somewhere over here. Uh, uh, uh. OK, you don't have to play this question. Um, <laughs> or, OK, turn it down a little bit, a few little oh, nuances, and then Ricky Gervais might appear. OK. Uh, once you get to know them, they're in there quick. But newer ones, you might just have to stop just whilst they're establishing and give them a bit, a bit of a run, give them a practice. Joe Biden I'd probably just have to stop and think of. For a moment. But then you get it. I'm re- I feel real good about where we are. You yeah, have a great guy in charge of the United Kingdom. I enjoyed my phone call talking to the great man running the United Kingdom. Sure was great talking to Marcus Rashford.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: he's, some, he's like a, a, a Wild West character, um, Joe Biden. Like, you know, one of the goodies in a Wild West classic.
0: Do you think of then, could you compare it with when you hear a voice, a new voice? that you think I'm going to have to do it, like Joe Biden or something, like, I need to, I need to have this one in my arsenal. Is it, is it even a case of, well, who does he sound like that I can? Is it that, and then you alter it that way, or is it... Is it... Yeah.
2: Very often it, it is exactly that. Uh, who do they sound like, who do they sound like? That sort of gets you into the right ballpark. Hmm, that sort of right. gets you into the right county. Yeah, uh, And then you get into much more of a <laughs> observing forensic mode where you're watching interviews over and over again. You're watching the YouTube uh, clips and you're just letting it really flow into your subconscious. A little bit of listen and repeat. Listen and repeat. It's like trying to learn a new language. And then you've got to know when to leave it alone. You've got to know when to leave it and just let your subconscious have it soak in a bit. And then over a week or so or two weeks... You should have a start on it. Then once you start to work it on uh, dead ringers or something, it'll infuse even more. When you listen back to the episode and you hear yourself doing it and you think, oh, I'll just retune that, a bit less of that, a bit more of this, you get another step forward. And and they fashion over time until until they really sit there.
1: Do you ever look back on stuff and go, that doesn't sound anything like them anymore? And, that it's, you know, you can see that you've improved.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah. I think with all, with all of them. Um, when I first did William Hague, for example, that was about 1997, 1998. And I did that uh, phone call with Steve Penk where I'd learnt William Hague as a voice and he did his comedy phone calls and said, well, well let's phone Downing Street. And I listened back to that and my my William Hague then was uh, somewhere around here. And uh, it was uh, sort of the start of it, the makings of it. Uh, but listening to uh, William Haig now, and having uh, done it for many years, uh, you're aware of many more wavelengths and different uh, parts of the tone that you can exaggerate. But
0: also, See, people's voices change as well, don't they? People get older, and they usually yeah. kind of go down a couple of uh, octaves or something, or they their voices themselves change a bit. So yeah, they do. That, too.
2: They do, they do, they do. With, with Big Finish productions, I do a fair few of the uh, Doctor Who audio dramas. And I play the Brigadier um, with with Big Finish. And the 1970s Brigadier. Doctor, wait, no, I do not propose to ignore the matter. Yes, I put it my best hand to it. Doctor Benton, Captain Yates. Well, uh, was uh, a times, uh, the retired Brigadier, uh, the voice of matured like a fine old whiskey yes i've seen some very strange things the odd the unexplained so they really do ronnie corbett's voice was a wonderful example of that (laughs) yeah that kind of uh, you might sort of imagine (laughs) you know in the early days of the two ronnie's uh, sitting in the chair (laughs) i just squeezed a canary into my gin (laughs) Uh, whereas later, later he was (laughs) much more (laughs) wiltshire farm fruits and Maturing like a fine old whiskey that that 's interesting to watch voices do that over the over the decades
0: okay. um, it's interesting you bring up Doctor Who there because that was one of your choices as we gave you as one of the things you were a big fan of, which isn't which isn 't a great surprise um, I, I always thought it's quite impressive that you managed to get uh, a Tom Baker Dr Who to appear in what was essentially a satirical uh, TV and radio series um. Tw- uh, Twenty years after Tom Baker was Doctor, <laughs> so you go. You've you've definitely shoehorned that in. You wanted that in the show, right? I I always
2: wanted to do, you, you, you take on the voice of Tom Baker, and you have such a booming and great, powerful eccentricity that if you exaggerate that, and it takes you into this beautifully uh, absurd comic universe, uh, a, a beautiful exaggeration, and juxtaposing that with a taxi office or a bingo hall. It's just a beautiful clash of universes. Um, my favorite ever Tom Baker call was to a, a bingo hall. And I, I think the call went... Uh, the name of the place was the Cosmos Bingo Hall, so that's irresistible for <laughs> a start. Hello, is that the Cosmos Bingo Hall? Yes, love. Excellent. Which part of the Cosmos? Echoes.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> Echoes, love.
0: That's one of the things, I think, that something like Doctor Who works well, though, right? Because it's taking an alien character and putting them in something quite mundane. So that's, that's almost... That's actually what the series is like in a lot of ways.
2: Yes, yes. Yes, the Doctor just wanders, wanders into these things, which can sometimes be very ordinary, just like we would see every day. And, and sometimes he might be meeting the mocks of Balhoon. All, all syllables sound, great when announced by Tom Baker.
0: <laughs> well, I saw at the weekend you were on Celebrity Mastermind doing John, oh, yes. Pertwee, John Pertwee Doctor Who episodes as your special subject, whereas I would immediately think, well, I would have thought he was more of a Tom Baker. That is, Is that...
2: Well, indeed, yeah. The, the Pertwee era was the first one that I ever watched when I was very young, and, and that just got me into the show in a way that was, was going to last forever. And uh, the, the memories uh, stay with you. Uh, Pertwee's voice, very a uh, wonderful sharp resonance as well. I have reversed the polarity of the neutron flow, so the tardis should be free of the force field now. A uh, deep, crisp resonance, and uh, an avuncular manner.
0: I would have thought the easiest way to get into uh, John Pertwee would be Wurzel Gummidge would almost be uh, kind of uh, your go-to impression of the uh, of, of thirty years ago, probably. <laughs>
2: It might be, it might be, it might be. I once saw John Pertwee's one-man show in Preston in 1993 at the Charter Theatre, and he told a story about where the voice of um, Wurl Gummidge came from, and I based it on that. Uh, I based it on a postman. You know, that, uh, there was a house that uh, uh, very high on a hill around about 100 yards, and um, it would have taken a great deal of effort to get up there. But the, the postman in his passport, capacity said, I ain't going all the way up there. i just going to leave the post down here. He can get it himself when he likes so he can, sir. <laughs> <laughs> that was where Wurzel came from. It was a, a, a postman who couldn't be bothered going all the way up the hill to deliver the letter.
1: Is there... Because my, my Doctor Who was Peter Davison. Yeah. And, um, and there's been other Doctor Whos, but mm. he will... Fr- like Roger Moore is my James Bond, and Peter Davison... But I would imagine someone like Doctor, uh, Peter Davison is quite a hard person to do an impression of. Um, is there anyone that you've given up on?
2: I think David Cameron was so bland and anodyne that, you know, you think, oh, let's... You just have to have it in a functional way because, you know, when someone is the prime minister, they have to appear in the show somewhere. Um, This is why I think Duncan Wisby is so so good. He did Cameron in uh, Dead Ringers. And where, you know, many of us would have been scratching our heads with Cameron a little bit, you know, just because of that that anodyne blandness. Nothing more than generic posh, really, and that's that's kind of it. Duncan found this sort of a, a slither... A sort. Of, he just found this tone to it, which was, oh, yes, that, that. And the audience responded to it. Not only did he just have the generic posh, he also found this way about the sense of him not wanting to be there, say the interview very quickly, and then go away. He just sort of dialed up a sense of entitlement and uh, all these other elements. And um, you don't always find those things. But Duncan certainly got it with, with, with uh, David Cameron. Also, with David Davis, who'd be going, the Brexit Bulldog, yeah. Um, <laughs> that takes a skill to find those.
1: With,
2: I remember doing Peter Davison in the audiobook of The Five Doctors. And Peter Davison, yes, quite breathy. I am Lord President, am I not? You'll obey my commands. <laughs> That's how it sounded in 1983 when in The Five Doctors.
0: I have that. Uh, with something like David, do you. Do you come up with impressions you can do, like new impressions that you can go to the writers and producers? Or is it the other side where someone's coming to you and saying, basically, this week we're going to need these these new impressions?
2: Yeah, it's a bit of each. Uh, because it's a topical show, um, usually about three days before each episode, um, Bill Dare will send an email around giving a list of names that we might need. Um which we'll then go off and we'll have a look at and try to get them into some sort of shape. Uh, and then in the, d- in the days of doing the show at the radio theatre, pre-lockdown, we'd all sit around the table and we'd all just have a go. And wh- whichever one rang true and sounded right, they would be the ones to do it. Now we will do that in a Zoom meeting. Um, so it, it can work that way. We'll, we'll have a quick go at the, um, at the new topical characters. Whichever one sounds right will do. Or if I'm playing the interviewer, um, somebody else might do it. So logistics play their part as well. But it all lands and and settles in the right place.
1: Do you ever fight over who's going to play
2: who? Yeah, sometimes there might be ones that we all want to do. um, but, But we're sort of used to that process. So just so long as we've all had a little read-through around the table, as long as we've all had a go, it, it, it's fine. Then then you're moving on to the next sketch, the next character then. And you can enjoy whoever's doing it. You know, whenever we... Um, when Trump came along, Lewis McLeod just read his read out his Trump, um, which he'd been doing for years, and, and that, that was obviously the one. That was the one. So great, so great, so great, so great, so great, so great. It was that kind of rhythm to it. Um, and it, you might have wanted to do one yourself, but it's also great to play off of it. Yeah, it's also good to bring another character and mix it in that way. Mm. So you do, you do get used to that—the the, the flow of it all.
0: In that in that instance, is it ever like—is there ever a competition element, or you just all have a go and say, "Well, let's all have a go and see who's who's we like best?"
2: Yes. Yeah, yes. Um, Bill Dare, the producer, will probably say. Okay, uh, I know you know you probably all do this person. Um, okay, okay, Lewis, you have a go. So great, so great, so great. Okay, you have a go. I I, I do not believe. It. Okay, you and then okay, right, Lewis, you do it. Uh, you do that. And you need a producer there just to not spend too much time on these things. Go. Okay, you do that. You do that. Being a bit like the football manager, just to um, you know, take where you're going to be on the pitch.
1: We're, we're, we're almost out of time, John. Um, we haven't really gone into what your favourite stuff is. Uh, in in, in, in as short a time as possible, what, what do you like about Star Wars?
2: <laughs> oh, Star Wars, oh yes, a, a, wonderful, um, a wonderful classic tale of good and evil. And of course, Obi-Wan Kenobi, one of my favourite characters. <laughs>
1: Well, you heard it here first, guys. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, um, we've got time to play um, a game with you, John, so I'm going to hand you over to Nathaniel Metcalf to play the world's internationally famous game, Better or Worse.
0: All right. It's good. called Better or Worse, and you have to say whether the next person on my list of people is better or worse than the person before, based on my own opinion to score points. Right, okay. Beginning with Antonio Banderas. But is Anthony Hopkins better or worse than Antonio Banderas? Um it's better. better? High cards. Better. 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 High cards. Glenn Close, better or worse than Anthony Hopkins?
2: Oh gosh, this is such a... Oh, these names judgments to them.
0: They are, what they, are, I they think, are. God, It's what I think to score points.
2: Okay, um, I'll 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 say Anthony Hopkins. Better, he's 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 right up there, isn't he? he is better. He is
0: better. Denzel, Denzel Washington better or worse than Glenn Close?
2: Better. Wow. Yeah, may, maybe we have to say, uh, maybe we have to say he's he's done such resonance. Better. Yeah, better. I
0: mean, correct. Yeah. Uh, John C. Washington better or worse than Denzel Washington? Sorry, couldn't, couldn't repeat that one, Diaz. <laughs> John David Washington, better or worse, than Denzel Washington.
2: I, I think Denzel has the edge here. I think we're yeah. still, we're we're
0: still De- Denzellified. Uh, John Cusack, better or worse than John David Washington?
2: Um. Okay, well, we shall vote for, for Cusack. Yeah. Yeah. Correct. Joan Cusack, better
0: or worse than John Cusack?
2: Better. Uh, gosh.
1: Uh, high and high cards. High cards. They're all carbs, with, It's a really difficult one. I would go with Joan.
2: Okay, I'll, I'll agree with that. It's a shame we
0: can't have Bruce to go. Okay. This, 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 you can change her if you want to. Change, <laughs> change it too, Leonardo, to Leonardo da Vinci. It is Joan. Joe. <laughs> Natalie Portman, better or worse than Joan Cusack.
2: Uh, I think the vote stays with Joan. I would Jane. go with Joan, yeah.
0: Uh, Emma Thompson, better or worse than Natalie Portman. Better. Yeah, I I think we vote for Emma Thompson, yeah. Correct, yeah. We're not saying that Natalie Portman won't reach these uh, great things. I mean, great potential. Of course. Um, Emma Watson, better or worse than Emma Thompson? Uh, I think uh, Emma Emma
2: Thompson is still the the one to vote for, I think. Correct.
0: Uh, And Emma Stone, better or worse than Emma Watson? Better.
2: Um... Go on, then we'll, we shall we shall vote for the stone.
1: Correct. I've watched the high score. You've got a turn! You've got a turn! You've got a turn. <laughs> You've got a turn, so you're as good as, I mean, this is the, the top scores. You're as good as Jem to, Thomas Coombs, Jason Manford and Joe Skadani, and you're better than David Badil, Ken Cheng, Mike Drucker, Harry Hill, Luke Morley with nine, Matthew Crosby, CeCe Dent, Charles Eston, Eddie Hearn, David Hepworth, Jason Hurst, Simon West, John Nevin, Magical Bones, Matthew Morden, Matt Oguin, Miranda Raisin, Griff Rees-Jones, Chris Stark, Stu Wiffen with eight, Richard Herring, James King, Ludie Lynn, Henry Normal, Janet Varney, Johnny Vegas with seven, Gary Delaney, Nell Frizzell, Frank Harper with six, and poor old Dave McLean with five. Um, John Coleshaw, welcome to the Clubhouse. Thank you for coming on our show. It was lovely to talk to you. It was lovely Um, to talk to you, and that was the finest racing commentary I've ever heard with uh, people and
2: not horses, so absolutely superb.
1: Not my word, guys. It's uh, John Colshaw. Um, uh, thank you very much for listening, guys. Uh, hope you're all are OK. Look after yourselves, and uh, we'll talk to you again uh, next week. Goodbye.